Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen. And remember, keep talking who. Time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the celebrated task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally celebrated three person discussion panel, including our so called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate level casual fan who has seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, it's me again. It's him again, and he's healed, and he's here with us, and we're very happy. And finally, there's our semi novice fan one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this around, this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. It is also, unfortunately for you, still me. It is unfortunate for all of us, but anyway, <sighs> that's fine. We enjoyed her, if, even if no one else does. Before we get to talking... Whoa, that <laughs> escalated quickly, as you yes, can say. Yes, it did. Let me take another gl- gl- drink of wine, because obviously reading the this book really got to me. Apparently. Mm-hmm. Before we get to talking about this book, please remember our new Patreon page, available at https forward slash forward slash patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. We know you all have them. You keep telling us, and we keep not listening. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. I have recorded a video at that site that tells you about other things that you can get, including our sweepstakes. If we reach our funding goals by 4-6-18, then some lucky new patron will get a first edition copy of Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks if you really want that. So there you go. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. Indeed. Thank you. This month, we are celebrating the month of February, which in America is designated as Black History Month, in the only way we can, given that we're still a month away from the first Doctor Who story to actually feature a person of color being given the speaking part, Unless I'm mistaken, that doesn't actually happen until the smugglers. Um, I know that uh, <laughs> we have somebody who listens to our podcast quite regularly and uh, che- fact checks me on this stuff. So please look that up for me, would you? I'm almost certain that's <laughs> it. Obviously, early to mid-60s era who is not known for its racial diversity. In fact, it won't be until the new series. But by a weird twist of fate, maybe even a cruel one, February happens to be the month in which we have the two back-to-back stories written by the writer, Ian Stewart Black. 
Amazingly, both stories even have something to do with the themes and history that are generally associated with this month. So we're going to try and link it all together as seriously and respectfully as possible, or at least as seriously and respectfully as this podcast ever fucking gets. What do you mean? I what do you mean? You know, we're kind of irreverent. The vitriol and... is starting up early. No, this no, evening. it's just I need this wine to kick in. <laughs> okay. No, 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 it's always there at a steady level under the surface. Well, that is true, too. However, you don't need to tell our podcast listeners that because they may want to meet me in person one day and they don't think that I'm going to chop their heads off. I thought you were going to say like you were like Samson. It was the secret to your strength. And you don't want them to cut your vitriol. Then Cut my vitriol. I... That's, there's so many ways that could be read. <laughs> I meant right. it in the most innocuous and biblical way. Sure you did. This, yeah, as if biblical ever means innocuous. This time, we're discussing Black's novelization of his script, The Savages. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who of the Savages, adapted by Ian Stewart Black from a script that aired from 52866 to 61866, published by Target Books in September 1986. As of this recording in February of 2018, this title is currently out of print, 127 pages. That was a lot of sixes. A lot of sixes, which probably explains quite a bit, because this is kind of the script of the devil. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm getting my own feelings about it away a little early, but... What's your Here's the thing, it may tell... Well, certainly... Sure as hell, damn isn't a six. That's for damn sure. Um, It is telling that there has not been an unabridged audio of this book released yet. That tells you something. Yeah, it does. Since we're going to be spending the entire month with him, it's probably best we start with the author first. <clears throat> I assume we're going to hear that he eats babies or something no, from no, your level of disdain. No, no, Actually, I love Ian Stewart Black. Here's okay. the thing. I, we'll, we'll get there. It's just I'm already poisoning the well, so just ignore me. I'm a cantankerous old man. Ian Stewart Black <laughs> was born in 1915. And today, filling the role of cantankerous old man. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. That's fine. Ian Stewart Black, as I was trying to say, <laughs> was born in 1915 and started Good a boy. long career as a novelist, playwright, screenwriter, and actor in college before serving in World War II. After being demobbed, he wrote extensively for British television, including shows that we've actually heard of, such as... After being what now? Demobbed. Demobilized. Oh, okay. Yeah, say, after forgetting, after quitting his life of organized no, crime. It's nothing. It's not a term that we actually use in American English much. I think we say after their commission has ended, or okay. after they've, you know, I, what do we say when someone leaves a service in America? Not demobbed, that they've been anyway, discharged. Discharged, something like that, honorably or dishonorably. Yeah, something like that. Anyway. He wrote for shows we actually had heard of, including The Invisible Man, The Saint, uh, which, of course, featured Roger Moore. And he co-created Danger Man, which is known in this country as Secret Agent. And that is the precursor to the extremely trippy 60s series The Prisoner, mm. which I know Allison has heard of and maybe even watched. I've I'm seen some. Sure. I am not familiar with The Prisoner. Oh, God, not that I know of. Well, that's our next movie next. we got to show you The Prisoner, because Christ almighty. Oh, my Lord. As he was a regular viewer of Doctor Who, Black inquired about writing the show for the same reasons that so many actors and writers would later do to impress his kids. One of those kids is the actress Isabel Black, who not only appeared in Danger Man and The Avengers, but was also almost cast in Doctor Who in a guest part. And this novelization, in fact, appears to have been dedicated to his grandchildren. Personally, I would have waited and dedicated the War Machines to them, but that's, that's just me. Black stands out among Doctor Who writers for being one of only three writers to ever write back-to-back stories in the same season. 
It wouldn't happen again until Chris Boucher's two stories introducing Leela in season 14, and then David Fisher's two stories for the Key to Time season in season 16. Chris Bidmead wrote both Tom Baker's Swan Song, which you and I watched at the Hmm. convention. Mm -hmm. We watched uh, Logopolis. We did. And then Peter Davison's introduction, but they were separated by season break, so it doesn't really count. The Savages was his original submission, and he was asked to write The War Machines based on Kit Peddler's idea when Pat Dunlop had to drop out of writing it. He's also the only other writer in the classic series to do one other thing, and this is a spoiler alert. You know by now that this is Stephen's last story. I can only hope this is a Winter Olympics tie-in that you're leading up to. No, it's not. The only one to ever do the triple axel. No, The War Machines is going to be Dodo's last story. So he is the only writer. Oh darn! Yeah, to write out two different companions. And by the way, those of you keeping score at home, the Daleks' master plan doesn't technically count because Katarina's departure was written by Terry Nation, and Sarah Kingdom's was written by Dennis Spooner. So mm. yeah, different writers. So keep your cards and letters to yourself, please. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So this is going to be Ian Stewart Black's first novelization. His story from the Trout in the Air of the Macritaire will be his second. And the third and final one is going to be our next book this month, The War Machines. So so we're going to lose two companions back to back. Back to back. It's a slaughter. It's reduced roadie. Sure. Yeah, it's a slaughter. <laughs> On the plus side, we get two new companions. So there's that. Now, yes. I just... <laughs> Are you are you telling me that Dodo dies? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but she might as well have done. That would have been more interesting than the way she actually does go. You'll see. You'll see when we get there. <laughs> we'll it's, see. It's even more interesting than the way Stephen goes on the page, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself again. Let's talk about the background of the savages, the story, the televised story, and then we'll get on to the book. Um, in fact, I should read the blurb, just so we were reminded about what this story is about for those of you that listen to us because you like the sound of our voices but you've never actually watched these. By the way, you can't watch The Savages because all four episodes are missing, except for some 8mm footage from the fourth episode, which, well, we'll get there. Landing on a distant planet, the Doctor confidently announces to his companions that the TARDIS has brought them to an age of great advancement, peace, and prosperity. In other words, not Trump's America. The Doctor's calculations seem to be confirmed when the travelers are greeted by Jano and the Elders, who take them on a tour of their city, a haven of beauty, harmony, and friendship, set in a wilderness inhabited by tribes of savages. But the security of the city is founded on one deadly and appalling secret. Soon the doctor and his friends discover that it is not only outside the city walls that savages dwell. <laughs> Jano and the Elder sounds like a good band name. Doesn't it? I'm surprised no one's taken it. In fact, yeah, you've got to give us a kickback if you do, by the yeah. way. Um, here's the thing about the story. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> While I, and you're laughing because you've already scanned ahead and you see what's coming. While the story has no ties to African-American history, it does have ties to African history, South Africa, specifically. The story was originally intended to be a parable about the apartheid era and was titled The White Savages. The idea was apparently to flip the concept of subjugator and subjugated, making the dark-skinned race the ones feeding off the energies of the pale-skinned savages. Which is a laudable idea, but it seems they were going to do this. That could backfire pretty badly. Oh, it would have. And you know why? 
because they were originally going to have all the city's inhabitants played by white actors doing blackface. Oh, well, I'm glad they didn't do I that. I think I just fainted yes, for a I, moment. Yes. And I'm back. Well, here's the thing: we have to, all the other side. Well, before it's you do, before you kiss the floor, <laughs> let me explain the historical context because in 1966, there are no black actors in all of Britain. Uh, there are because they'll start using them in Doctor Who. Um, in fact, there would have been plenty. I think, but uh, here's the thing. The thing is, the BBC. There's going to be more than one thing here. I think there is. Since 1958, the BBC had been producing something called the Black and White Minstrel Show. They just straight up called it that. No, no window dressing. No, no no clever play on words. No, we know what it is, but we're not calling it that. Just straight up, call it what it is. And this show ran from 1958 to 1978. Holy hell! There is a certain satisfying smoking gun quality about it. There is. Well, here's the thing. Um, Uh, Just for for you listening at home playing the home drinking game, I'm starting a second glass based on the uh, news I'm getting from Tony. Right. Here's the thing, though. Blackface never had quite the punch in Britain that it does here. No. It well, never had the negative... Well, it didn't have, for the longest time, the negative connotation. Just as the N-word, for instance, we talked about this, that the N-word was being used as the name of an Agatha Christie book in the 20s. This is the same, like, repeated the British European garbage argument that, and also Australian argument. Oh, we're not racist. That's Americans who are racist. I'm not not arguing it wasn't racist. I'm not arguing it wasn't racist at all. I mean, black people in Britain probably, and I'm sure they did, take offense at this show. But it was on the air for 20 years. And by the time this episode aired, it had been on the air for, you know, almost 10 so it wasn't, I hate, I would love to say that the BBC thought, you know, the optics of this are pretty bad. They didn't. There's no, I've been looking to see why they decided against this. And there's no real reason why they decided against it. As a matter of fact, the actor playing Jan, uh, Jano still is in blackface in hmm. the televised version. Really? Yes. We only have telesnaps, of course, so we can't really see how much the extent of it. it, But it's better to have just one actor in blackface than to have a whole cast, especially... Okay, so not to put too fine a point on it, why don't they just hire a dark-skinned actor? Um, That is a good question. And I think it's not so much that there weren't enough around. I think it's that there may not have been the political will at the BBC to look for that many black actors at once. Perhaps I don't know. I really don't know what the not even is one, <laughs> not even for the one guy. I that... know, right? Because of course we're going to get a black actor in the Savages. We're going to get a black actor, not Savages. We're going to get a black actor in um, Smugglers. We're going to get one with a significant speaking role in Hartnell's last story, and we're going to see them peppered throughout the sixties. But it's going to be peppered. Hmm. That's the thing. It's you're not going to have major coverage of black actors in Doctor Who at all until well into the 70s and then of course the new series which has really kind of broken down all the boundaries for that except for casting a black actor as the Doctor that's the last thing that they still need to do despite what Rich Johnston tried to tell us a few years ago remember the Patterson-Joseph scare yes. not scare but announcement that turned yes. out to this and I would have loved Patterson. Okay, not that I was scared of him, but the sensation that turned out to not be accurate. Exactly. Well, we're going a bit far afield, but 
I'd like to think that somebody considered the implications that the optics of the story could have had by having a darker-skinned dominant race feeding off a lighter-skinned race for its art, music, and culture, which could easily lead to someone, say, um, a Richard Spencer type, interpreting the story as saying that people like, say, Billie Holiday or Louis Armstrong were only so talented because they learned these skills from white people. Yeah, that would have been bad optics all around. Trash. Yeah, just a tad bit. So we get this story instead. By the way, Peter Purvis left the show at this point because he was frustrated about the same thing that we have been, the lack of character development in Steven. Yeah. So he knew yeah. and was just frustrated. But we find out more about what happens to him in the audios, in which he becomes king of the cities with three daughters, and the youngest of those daughters is named Dodo. Which I think is awfully sweet. Yeah, I think that's awfully sweet. And the other two daughters, unfortunately, depose him. It's very much like uh, King Lear. Oh, on King Lear. Yeah, that's exactly what it ended up being. There you go. It really is. Even puts his eyes out. Exactly. And finally, one other fairly major thing about this story. It it barely is worth mentioning, but it's, it's a bit of a landmark. This is the first televised story to have all four episodes go out under one name rather than having separate episode names for each episode. Mm. So there's that. So just Roman numerals, something like that? Um, Not even Roman numerals. It was just Savages, episode one, episode two, Mm -hmm. episode three, episode four, the way that those of us who grew up in the 70s and Mm. 80s remember watching it. Mm. So, yeah. Wow. And we haven't even talked about (laughs) the book yet. So let's... But I feel like we know where you're going with it. Well, (laughs) I I, I want to let you all talk about this more because I have my reasons. I have my reasons. Well, I have a question. Last week, you gave us a really interesting date that I cannot recall about the year when, and sometime in the 80s, when the books were considered by many to have switched over from youth-oriented to more... Collectibles. Collectibles. 1986, which is the year this was published. Okay, I was going to say, I thought it was right around here, because this seemed very firmly youth-centered. Oh, yeah. in, In a way that makes a lot of sense. I have a feeling that someone didn't give Ian Stewart Black the memo yet. Because, in fact, I was talking with Dalton about this in the car. This is the first of three novelizations he's going to do. The War Machines, which we have next, is his last one. And I read them back to back because I needed to get ahead because I'm teaching at the same time as doing this. And the difference is night and day. Hmm. I went from going off this and going... And just, you know, making sick sounds in my throat and being like, Jesus, God. And I opened up the War Machines and immediately first paragraph i was like whoa yeah it's like somebody else wrote it Hmm. so i think he got the memo by then i don't remember enough about the macro terror to know if he got the memo for that one since that was 87 but yeah by 88 he had gotten the memo and i apologize you just told us did he write the original episodes he did okay he did so he's adapting his own work he did which is what makes this I'm not going to say it, damn it. You, you two talk about it first. So I'll say that he seems to have changed his mind because okay. I was looking pretty closely at the physical descriptions mm-hmm. and my impression from the book was that he goes out of his way to not assign ethnic or racial characteristics. None whatsoever. At all. The closest he gets is saying that uh, the, the, quote, savages, and quote, that they have skin that is weathered and tan. So like, okay, yeah. skin that could be tan, but actually any human skin can exactly. still get darker. Especially if they're living in the wilderness. So exactly. I actually thought that what he was implying was that 
they're the the people in the city and the, and the the savages are the same species, the same ethnicity. That their differences are not physical and genetic; they're more how they're carrying themselves. The doctor yeah. refers to finding the city people so attractive and walking with confidence. And I thought it was a matter of they've been living differently in comfortable circumstances yeah. versus in a yeah, it's almost like area. moral class difference in the race. I was gonna say that plays yeah. into classicism, which is also tied to racism. Right. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Which go. still works quite well with the right. themes of this month. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, so exactly. instead of contrasting two ethnic groups, I thought he was implying that that was all in the mind of the city people. Yeah, and that may very well be the case. In fact, I think that's what he was doing. He was trying to, I hate to use this term for it, but it does, definitely sounds like he whitewashed his own story. Because he does yeah. not mention Jano's darker complexion yeah. at all, even though it's on screen. No. Of course, we can't see it. So you can get a better or worse choice? I don't want to go into that just yet. Okay. Um, but ask me again. But it's very similar to the, the, the two stories we've seen before with Yellowface, where the novelization from the 80s makes it clear that this is Mandarin costume and attire yes. as opposed to an Asian person. Yes. So they definitely take that... Con- make pretty deliberate choices about changing that content in the 80s. Yes. And I'm wondering... In fact, I, I did read that blog that said that um, The Celestial Toymaker was the most racist story ever. And I seem to recall that he loved this story and had no problems with it. And I thought, wait a minute, how how do you justify that when the beginnings of the story, it's kind of like doing the right thing for the wrong reasons? It's, it's this one... Deli- or the wrong thing for the right this reasons. This one delicately dances around the fact that these are, you know black people yeah and, and they're, they're you know like we, like we said the language that he uses to describe them is very sparse very like mm-hmm. metered in a way like yeah. to I mean, not explicitly say yeah. these are black people and they are yeah. well no yeah. but well but he's is the writer british yes he could be talking about any number of people groups in the world if we didn't have the context of you things writing about apartheid this That's could be true. about the indian subcontinent this yeah. could be about southeast That's asia this could be about north america this could be about i'm just telling with british colonies right now this could be about any uh, European colonial, European control colonial okay. era, uh, or area. I think that's. I thought that was what he was going. Well, you're for. bringing me back around a little bit to liking the story, then, because if we were looking at it in that sense, it does become an every story for just the British Empire yeah. draining the resources of subjugated races for art and culture and such, which is a very valid argument. You could even go. Sounds like the Spanish Empire oh, yeah. as well. Or yeah. even or even the American colonies. I mean, for it's that imperialism. It's, the 60s. it's imperialism, period. Yeah. It's, Cultural imperialism. It's definitely that. Yeah. So who's really ready good and ready for Tony's tirade? I feel like he salted the oats very effectively. I'm I am ready and now I for you like to, to unleash your wrath. Oh you too. You do. Well, A third glass, sir. Well, maybe <laughs> I will see. I want to hear y'all y'all's thoughts first though, because honestly, don't I want to start with you because you know, uh, before before we started recording, we were kind of talking about race a little bit, and uh, I, I grew up in the South, so I'm very familiar with blackface and cultural appropriation and the history of slavery and and race relations in this country, and, and like we said, they, they kind of extend to any kind of imperialist uh, uh, ideas. Um, so yeah... Uh, I, I took this not as necessarily like a specific example of of that. This was more of like a broader 
generalization of this is bad, this is a thing that has happened throughout history, clearly and even in the future, it's still happening. Um, so, yeah, just uh, the broader themes of it, I think, um, are really interesting, but the writing itself is a little more restrained. And, and like, like we were saying, it's, it seems like it's aimed a little more at a, at a younger audience, maybe to kind of make it more, not palatable, but just a little more Accessible. digestible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. Something that kids may not necessarily, these bigger ideas that, I mean, in the 21st century, of course, we're all talking mm-hmm. about cultural appropriation and mm-hmm. racism and that stuff. But, you know, back, you know, in the yeah. 60s, maybe wasn't as at the forefront mm-hmm. um, as much as people maybe wanted it. True. And Doctor Who tended to be a little more left of center than most shows of this sort. And children's fiction of all sorts, definitely. But this does feel like a children's parable of yeah. these issues. Yeah, because like cultural appropriation was never something growing up in the South. Racism was a thing. Cultural appropriation, stealing culture and ideas from other people and assimilating them into mm-hmm. your own, was not something that I really started saying, hearing It was about. definitely a thing. We it just didn't have the word yet. No, don't get me wrong. It was <laughs> yeah. definitely a thing. Southern Definitely a thing. But you it, will it be assimilated. <laughs> it wasn't as much in like the social conscious as, as like just outright racism. Agreed. Um, so I feel like when this when this would have aired in the sixties, it definitely probably would have been more like subtle. Yeah, I feel like in some ways the story has come back around. So in the sixties, you still had to explain that racism is bad. Yeah. Yes, you did. By the 80s, you didn't have to explain that racism was bad. You had to point out the different things that were racism that people were saying, we're not, oh, really racist, you know, racism. And and I think in some ways we're back to the 60s again, where you have to explain that no, racism is bad. The earth is a sphere. Nazism also is bad. Eugenics are bad. We've talked about this before, class. These things still remain bad. For those of you who showed up late. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. But I think... Richard Spencer. (laughs) A lot of his strengths and weaknesses here are the strengths and weaknesses of District 9 and Zootopia. So District 9 is a film that's much more blatantly about apartheid and racism, but gets the analogy pretty inside out in terms of who was there first. But one of the main critiques I read about it was not so much about the story of the humans and the aliens so much as the worst people in the entire film are the Nigerians. There's a lot of racism in South Africa against Nigerians. Uh, None of the Nigerians were portrayed by Nigerian actors, but for various reasons of studio facilities and that sort of thing, almost the entire Nigerian film industry is located in South Africa. (laughs) So there were lots of Nigerian actors available, but they are portrayed as animalistic. Animalistic. Yeah, and the yeah the only ones who have sexual contact with the aliens, etc. And the only irredeemable people in the entire movie that's supposed to be an anti-racist movie. (laughs) So, um, it it was actually quite the the surprise to me when the term savages was used by Stephen and Dodo. Yeah. And never rescinded, or never they never thought, oh God, maybe I was wrong about that description. And never justified. Because even when they use it... They, refused to, they refer to the attire yeah, of wearing animal that's skins. It. That's it. That's the only descriptor that they use for it. Because when we do encounter the savages, there's nothing 
savage about them. They're just on a lower yeah. level of living, a more primitive form of living. But it's not because they're primitives. Yeah. It's because their intellectual strengths are being drained. Well, yeah. and, and well, that in itself seems to kind of reflect, you know, modern day ideas about uh, about black people, too. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. black black men are demonized as being horribly violent and, and stuff like that. And it's like... Have you actually interacted with these people at all? Exactly. At all. Have you tried to sit down and, and meet with them face-to-face and yes. talk it out? Exactly. No, you're just taking advantage of them. Right. And while bad choices might may be made by everybody, yeah. a lot of the bad choices in that community are made simply because there is no other choice, because yeah. white society has taken away job opportunities and divested them of any sort of educational opportunities. And yeah, there's outright racism going on. Going back to our cultural digression of the last few years, there was an infamous moment at CPAC about five years ago. <laughs> you might know where I'm going I here. Going. Where someone was speaking from the stage about Frederick Douglass. They were indeed. And this was an era at CPAC when speakers still tried to get people to not say racist things from the floor. <laughs> and I don't think that's even a, a priority anymore. But in 2013, I think they really were trying. And someone was talking about Frederick Douglass and a, a letter that someone had written. He, he, had, he had written a letter soliciting an apology or someone offered him an apology. And some guy shouts from the floor, what? You know, apology from the master for giving him food and shelter? And the- When Douglass escaped from slavery, I think 10 years or 20 years after he escaped from slavery, he writes a letter to his former slave master and said, I forgive you. For all the things you did to me. Forgiving him shelter, food, all those things. I mean, no. Excuse me? Like a wave passes through the room. People rear back. Like they're gasp. And today, I don't think that would turn a, a hair in that particular no, audience. No, that's for damn sure. But here's why it's an important distinction. Is that uh, there's actually a great Twitter feed called African American History Fail. <laughs> by a person <laughs> who used to do... Uh, a plant, uh, plantation tours of a restored oh, yeah. plantation, uh, talking about um, all the asinine questions he or she was asked. She has um, a YouTube channel as well, okay, great. in which she's speaking in character and answering okay, questions. Okay, okay, about all the asinine questions yeah, that she's, she's been awesome. asked and declarations that have been told her over the years, and she's talking about there's always some guy who's, say, who's saying, now surely not all masters were that cruel, and <laughs> she created the hashtag not all masters. <laughs> well, but her point was that the modern talking point is about whether or not treatment was humane, which is how we talk about how animals are treated. Exactly, and no one so, sees that. The thing that I thought was actually pretty good about this story as a story for young people is that that's a talking point that the city people use. Well, we're not killing them. That's true. And we're not really harming them in any sort of long-term way. We're not cruel or unkind to them. We just need this from them. And the doctor is appropriately apoplectic, saying, no, these are human beings. You can't treat them this way. What, these savages? What are you getting so upset about? And the the interesting... um, So I thought... The strength and weakness of Zootopia is dealing with the concept of scientific racism. Oh, yeah. They actually talk about it in a very straightforward way, but their analogy is showing literally different species in such a way that, like, in their world, there really is different significant species, species yeah. different that where the analogy doesn't carry through. But I, I was actually really surprised in, in that movie when, you know, 
they, they really take on full on the modern talking point of, well, maybe their biology makes them more aggressive than the, <laughs> and the, the seductiveness of that pseudoscientific veneer. Yeah. And the way that's often manifested in modern medicine in this country is this concept that, well, you know, black people don't really feel pain the same way we do. Right. Uh, but that doesn't get addressed here necessarily. It does, yeah. Oh, they wait. actually talk about in the procedure. Oh, wait, that's right. Um, we're actually on the procedure, um, but uh, one of the city people, I'm sorry, they're completely interchangeable well, in my they mind. They really are. There's um, no differentiation between the characters. Um, the, the doctor is outraged saying, you can't touch this man. He could die if you touch him or move him. And I've got the quote here. What do you think you're doing? The doctor asks, what do you think you, uh, you're doing? If he moves, he may die. Not much chance of that, grin Adol. Uh, they're tough as old boots, these rascals. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, why, um, fear, why are you making the big deal over these savages? And his point is, you're not going to hurt him. He's not delicate. He's not fragile. He's not in pain. He's not in danger of dying. And that, that I actually thought was a pretty, pretty good um, head-on way to take on that trope that still continues to this day. Yeah, and in fact, that's from Chapter 5, and I noticed one of the things that is really different is that the Doctor in the televised version actually says they are human beings just like you and me. And obviously, some, someone got to Ian Stuart Black and said, <coughs> <coughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> the, the episode of the original Office wherein someone loses a pub quiz over whether or not Mr. Spock is... Is Vulcan or half a Vulcan? <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, you know. It's not Moors, it's Moops. He, he, so he's, he's definitely trying some good things there. Yeah, true. But then he has our point of view characters referring to them as savages. Yes. And never changing their minds about yeah. that. And that that's problematic for me for so many reasons. Especially I'll... since one of them is going to stay there. And work with them. When is the last time do that we see Stephen or Dodo refer to them as savages, though? Um, that is a good question. And I don't expect either of you to have like it's an actual page, number page annotation, but it's at least three or four times that yeah. they use the term. But I can I can understand if they're referring to them to to them as mm-hmm. as savages if that is from the perspective of the city folk. You know, right, but we, it continues we, pretty late into the story when they're actually in the once cave, they've actually in the interacted cave with. Yes, okay, that's yes. what, that's what I was asking because I didn't I didn't pick up that on that specific mm-hmm. aspect as much as you guys. But that again is kind of if there was a progression of Stephen and Dodo kind of coming around. I mean, clearly they come around to them. Yeah. Um, but if there was more of a cognizant kind of awareness mm-hmm. of oh maybe we shouldn't do that. My impression um, was that they still see them as childlike they do and yeah that maybe the doctor has a revelation that steven and dodo do not of their full humanity or maybe i just want that to be there and not even that but there. i think i think too it comes from this 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 maybe with them being from more advanced times you know the quote-unquote savages are literally living off the land living in these caves and ravines and tunnels and things like that um that they just accept the term because it's yeah civilization people are referred to as savages whether or not they are civilized you know the native americans were savages but they had some of the greatest civilizations yeah. that have existed on this planet. Specifically colonial term. Well, exactly. Right. So it comes from this idea that we are better than you because we are from this 
this this time we have advanced past where you're at. So the city people specifically use the term "we are more developed than they are." Exactly. So, I would I would have liked to maybe um, see Stephen and Dodo, you know, people that even myself, you know, growing up in the South, racism was something that was in my life and is something that I probably not probably did show but having grown up having educated myself having come through lots of things myself come to a better understanding and realizing that's not right you know and 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 as children we're not told what's right and wrong we literally are just told this is the truth this is the way it is Mm And so once you're allowed to come to conclusions of your own about people, then you can really start to, to work on that relationship, you know. Um, so I really wish there probably would have been more of that, you know, of Stephen and Dota really kind of embracing um, those, those characters and those people. I think the writer brings up the really important issue of humane treatment versus full humanity. Yeah. But then he doesn't actually follow through on it with his point of view characters. Exactly. Of course not, because it's just doing 127 pages. Exactly. And so, like, it, it's something that we've run into in the past where there are these large themes that they're really trying to... Yeah. Good, good first 30 to 60 pages. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then it's just running around and fighting and climbing things. And that's true for episode story, because by this point in the series, it's four episode stories are calcifying into the first episode sets up the peril. Second episode, you put the regulars in peril. Third episode, they're running around, which is what they do in this episode. And then the fourth is resolution. And so, I think that's why I'm kind of pissed off, because it's such a standard Doctor Who story trying to do so much more than a Doctor Who story. Yeah, and and... I I think that's ultimately a failure. But that, that, it's kind of like a, it's a failure that you just kind of have to accept as part of, part of the game. when, When you are creating something that is truncated like that like we have four episodes to get this out i'm writing a a pulp novel for teens into adults you know you're kind of given these parameters and so it's really hard to explore these ideas at great length when you you can write 120 pages it's not it doesn't give you enough space to really flesh it out to really get into it i feel he did have space but it just devolved into standard action sequences towards the end and I, i think that was disappointing mostly because um, it it did start off with high ambitions and significantly yeah. more insight than I expected. Totally, but in the end, he's still going by a script of a TV show he wrote twenty years before. Exactly. So he can't he can't really get away from that because he still has plot points he has to plug in there. Yeah. So. But fortunately, those episodes have been lost to us, and he actually well, yeah. could. Yeah, <laughs> he actually could do quite a bit of variation and filling out and and that's kind of the Peter's problem out. I have. That's the biggest problem I have with this story. The fact that this is somebody who, if you've got an original author going into novelization, then I expect them, I really want them to do a little bit more world building than they were given the chance to do on screen. He doesn't take that chance. This one's kind of phoned in. like. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. And I think it's basically because Black was told, hey, you can't go over 130 pages. And he said, okay, I won't. And so he doesn't. And it's unfortunate because when you get to the War Machines, which does go past that page count, suddenly the prose just starts 
coming alive and he's painting characters and he's doing more with internal thought processes whereas the only people we get the internal thought processes of here of here are Jano and that's because he's thinking like the doctor at that point yeah none of the rest of them are characters at all they're just paint painted cutouts and what he does well is he avoids the the pitfall of this era of creating sort of a, a false equivalency of, you know, oh, black on the left, white on the right, or the reverse, ain't no good guys. That's eh, you and me, we just disagree. Yes. Instead, no, here, here he shows definitely uh, a massive power imbalance with one group exploiting the other, and not out of a, a conscious feeling of mustache twirling animosity or right. hatred, but purely out of dehumanizing another group for personal gain yes. that seems possible because it's not born i mean that's uh that seems acceptable because it's not born out of hatred or animosity it's purely viewing people as livestock that's yeah. a natural yeah. resource yeah they are not malicious. that's just the way things are yeah you know, quote unquote that is much <laughs> much closer to actual racism in our world than just an equal an equal animosity yeah. an intertribal feud I, I'm thinking of Iris Marion Young's essay, The Five Faces of Oppression. And one of those five faces is exploitation. And specifically, an oppressed race will exploit an oppressed race in order to get the fruits of their labor. And that happens only not only with physical labor, but also with intellectual labor. Yeah. That seems to be exactly the form of racism that's happening in this story, if it is racism at all, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, there's definitely some sense of that and cultural appropriation, obviously. I thought it was pretty insightful to, to deal with this concept of literally sapping their strength and their intelligence, taking the resources of their literal bodies and saying, well, they're, they're, they're stupid and they're not very strong. But that's a problem that's... for me, too, because how is that literally sustainable? If we're talking about exploitation in the same way that oppressor races exploit oppressed races now... The reason why it's sustainable is because there's always more labor to be had. Right. In the case of the savages, though, you're draining away their energy, which eventually gets replaced, but isn't there a point at which they simply don't have any more creative energy to drain off? They talk about those structures that they've been living in that were created thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. They have no artistic talent now. Is it just kind of part of their genetic makeup that the elders are draining it off so it can't re-flourish? What exactly is that? It doesn't seem like a sustainable system to me. No. I thought it was an, I thought it was an analogy for being constantly exhausted mm -hmm. and constantly in a state of fight or flight. And I got that. So that it, it was a critique I read a, a few years ago of the typical Holocaust movie that uses as a point of view character someone who is being persecuted and hunted by the Nazis. The Jewish character, the gay character, the Roma character. And basically the critique was um, the, the default character should be the, quote, ordinary German, end quote, who doesn't have to do anything but sort of keep their head down. There are, by default, many more people in that category, and that's, that would be the more sort of valuable moral lesson to teach over and over like again. Like the book thief. And I, th I haven't read, um, but I, I thought that the, the author did a good job of starting out with the doctor 
um, at first we think, you know, he's gone to the wrong place. He says he's going to this very advanced situation, uh, civilization. Mm-hmm. Instead, there are people running around with clubs and spears, wearing animal skins. We think he's gotten lost. And then there are people from exactly the advanced civilization he thought he was going to visit. Mm-hmm. And it does make sense in the story that at first the doctor is impressed by them. Dodo and Stephen are impressed by them. And it's really easy to see how they fall into this colonialist racist view before they understand the full spectrum of what's going on because that's much more we experience today not so much you know a person walking down the street screaming racial slurs and hatred but this system of exploitation and systemic racism you have to be awakened to it yes yeah that 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 it's not going to be obvious, as we said, mustache twirling on the surface. No. But they, they open one eye, yeah, if you will. And there are characters in the story that are kind of mustache twirling, but not to the same degree. I think um, I'm thinking of whoever... The guards. Yes. A couple of the guards. Jenna's you know, lieutenant, for instance, yeah. is uh, in that ilk. But... That's just it. There's no real... It, it's almost as if there's no real malice to that either. It's just like, you need not right. do this because this is the way we've always done this. It's more about not upsetting the status quo. Yeah, which yeah. which actually is a, a much more relevant moral lesson of sort of the banality of evil. We yes. don't mean yeah. ill. It's just, you know, we got to eat and we've got to function right. and look at what we've built and we're not really hurting them. I mean, they, they regenerate their strength and their intelligence. They'll yes. be fine. They prefer it out there. I thought some of the gender content of this was really interesting in that there are three different occasions when Stephen says that Dodo imagines things. Oh, God, but yeah. But every single time... She is right. Well, and he knows it. Yeah. Do we hear something? No, no, you're imagining things. Let's go ahead and leave. And... At least in terms of America, of of American Southern racism, the whole gender and Jim Crow concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Post Civil War, the entire public just not the entire, but a massive part of the public justification for the Jim Crow and later racist structural system is the protection of white women. Yeah. You have to be saved from these terrible, violent savages, these men who will rape you to death, these women who are rough and will treat you badly. And Which led to Emma Till, for instance. Yes, exactly right. And so I thought that, that the author was actually doing a, a, a decent job of approaching that with Stephen saying, you know, basically gaslighting um, <laughs> in <laughs> some ways. Well, I say gaslighting, uh, Dodo, because every single time the writer makes it clear is he, he agrees with her concerns. Right. There's some kind of danger going on, but that it's for her protection that he should pretend that she's crazy. It's for her. Now, he does not, for her protection, then enact violence against the people he calls savages. So they don't take the analogy all the way through, but it does not protect her. She's the one who's almost entirely subjected to the process first. Mm -hmm. So his telling her that she's nuts and imagining things and trying to defend her against the city people by saying, oh, she just imagines things as well. Don't take her away. She doesn't know anything. Right. It never works at all. It's not effective. And that was actually kind of a nice touch. Yeah. I do I do find, though, that Stephen does seem to think that Dodo's kind of dumb because at one point he says, not even Dodo would do something that stupid. And it turns out, yes, she has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 
I, I feel like the... But she's the one who catches on first of the three of them. Yeah. What's going well, on. This, it's she again, stumbles into it. It's but... again this, this problem that we've had with Dodo and Steven to some extent about the characterization being all yeah. over the place. All we have read stories yeah. where Dodo is stupid, where yes. she has done really dumb things. Well, it's a very... It's the first or second one. page of the book, we're told the doctor's looking at some readouts. He would have shown them to Steven and Dodo, but there would have been no point. They were too stupid to understand yeah. them. Yes. I don't know how to feel about her. You said because of her change in characterization. Because, I mean, I I haven't gone back and, and read uh, The Dog's Master Plan. Um, and then the two stories. She's not in it. Well, exactly. Yeah. I didn't read it, so I don't right. know that. Um, I didn't read the first one she appeared in, and I don't feel like I missed anything. But... But since having been out with with my broken foot, I didn't I didn't read all, I haven't read all of her stories. But the ones I have read, it, it, <laughs> then you're never gonna read them. <laughs> you didn't her, you with her the character foot. is inconsistent. Like yeah. I don't know how to feel about her. Sometimes she's very smart and she's intuitive and she's yeah. really thoughtful. And then sometimes she does stupid things. And it's, I don't. And so like Stephen acting that way towards her, I like totally feel like man, fuck that dude. But also like. <laughs> I don't know, because, yeah, sometimes she does stupid stuff, so it's like, I don't want to feel that way, but also, like, sometimes she does stupid stuff, so... And that inconsistency in her character is in the text of this book. I mean, in chapter one, for instance, it's, uh, Black says, Dodo was more patient than Steven. It's like, since when? She was not Not the patient one in the Celestial Toymaker. No! She was the one jumping ahead and almost getting them in some sort of trouble. Yeah. But I don't feel like one or the other is getting the short end of the stick. Both of them are characterized or not characterized in that way. Totally, yeah. This is why I'm fine with stories where they are purely actors, plot device, uh, well, plot devices, um... Because I'm not, I don't feel like I'm losing anything. Yeah. Like there are times yeah. I was, I was annoyed when Vicky wasn't developed in ways I thought she had been teased to be interesting, and then that never really bore fruit. I, the only thing I'm consistently disappointed in is uh, Stephen not being able to sort of use his science and astronaut background. Right. He's explicitly described here as useless and stupid when uh, it comes to dealing with navigating the TARDIS, and he really should have something to offer. He should have two brain cells to rub together, and he does not. He is. He, is it this story where they're both helping the Doctor pilot the TARDIS to land? Am I misremembering? No, I don't think it was. I remember he, he wouldn't even show them the printouts because why the poor fools? I'm not quoting directly. There. Yeah, that's no. it. Yeah, there's a batch of printouts and he waves them at them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that was um, the previous one. Maybe the Gunfighters, but maybe oh, was yeah. the Gunfighter. It not, might have been or Celestial Toymaker. One not even the two. obvious humor element of Stephen thinks that he could fly the TARDIS. Yeah, but he yeah. really couldn't. He's he's applying inappropriate analogies, and he really doesn't understand how it works. But he tries. Not even anything like that. Yeah. No, he he himself has forgotten that he is an astronaut. Yes, <laughs> and we forget it too because he's well, a piano player and a singer and a fucking. It annoys me because he should be intensely curious about the technology he should and he rarely is or yeah. he's very easily waved off yeah well he's gonna become king of this planet at some well, point so he's gonna learn about it i'm sure and you know in 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 ways it makes me wonder if that is like a if that's a fault of having these companions that come and go so quickly yeah. my people come and go so quickly here you know barbara and ian we had 
tons of stories with to really flush them out, get a feeling for them. And I feel like maybe the stories themselves really played to that. Yeah. But, but you know, Vicky, Steven, Dodo, we get these very inconsistent characterizations across the stories, and we see them come and go. And yeah. with Barbara and Ian, we at least saw that even though they were far below the doctor's level in terms of knowledge of science and history, they were curious about their own areas of expertise. Yeah. They were curious. Stephen was, I mean, it's right, Ian was curious about learning about history. Barbara was curious about learning about science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The doctor is constantly talking about how incompetent they are. Yeah. But they are frustrated because they want to learn new things. Yeah. I think he's overconfident. We don't really have that tension here. And even, even people seeing... snipping in a sort of lame, mean way. Yeah. yeah. And even seeing them be able to use some of their expertise in their yeah. their adventures, you know, yeah, um, be being able to lean on biology yeah, or trying sailing also, yeah, you know, a little knowledge is dangerous. Is a, kind of an yeah, and the yeah. last time we saw Stephen use his skills as an astronaut was in Dalek Master Plan mm-hmm. when he managed to get himself stuck in that gravity mm-hmm. bubble. Because he's yeah, like, he well, can this... use it badly. That's fine. Yeah, That's totally viable. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, well, yeah. this technology isn't too far from mine. I mean, yeah. they're saying it's outmoded, yeah. but we were using it all the time. Let me do this. Oops. This <laughs> and is... that's the last time we ever see that. This is something kind of nice they did in the new series with the episode with, I can't remember the actor's name, but he's the, the dad in Downton Abbey. Where he's oh, yes. like a 17th or 18th century Chris pirate. the Black Spot. But he, he figures out the general concept of the controls of the advanced ship pretty quickly saying, oh, this does that, this does that. Yes. Like, How do you know that? Speaking well, it's a ship, that. isn't it? And that was actually kind of this lovely yeah. moment, like, oh, it's a ship, right? Well, it's also right. a, a modern way of speeding the plot along. But but it does but, actually have this, it is a sort of a lovely grace note where, yes, he's he's many centuries behind, but he understands the concept of a ship. Yeah. And right. there are certain things Thrust that don't change. Thrust, yes, right. in terms of the physics in a ship. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if you have a gun. And you could have that with Stephen either, like, mm-hmm. well, you know, ship is a ship, or right. conversely, I, I understand ships, and he totally does not understand no, ships. But not at all. Either way is a tension, and they don't have it. Interesting you should bring that up, because um, that's a story you're both obviously familiar with from the new series, I did not know until I started doing research for some of our upcoming episodes that the next to last Hartnell story, The Smugglers, is kind of a backwards sequel to that story. Hmm. Because the disappearance of that ship in Curse of the Black Spot is exactly what the people are talking about in Uh, The Smugglers, uh and they're trying to find the treasure that they left behind. Uh It's like, oh... That's mm-hmm. nice and subtle. Yeah. Not that anybody else remembers the smugglers at all. And in fact, I'm gonna. <laughs> he takes a drink. Then he gonna, slams it down. Angrily. I'm gonna forget it as soon as we read it. But especially since it's Terrence Dix again. But uh, anyway, friends, we've all had rough weeks here. We really <laughs> have. Um, but we should talk about the book a bit. Uh, just the sheer writing of it and such, because that's my biggest problem with it. And to be to be fair. It's mostly because I stupidly read the next book immediately mm. after it and saw two books side by side, thinking they're both by the same author and they should be the same level, and they're not, and that kind of pisses me off even more than I was already pissed off at this book, for various reasons. I didn't notice the writing at all, and that wasn't a problem for me. Okay. So, Cotton's style is so flashy and showy, <laughs> and I was disappointed in the last book because I'd so enjoyed the previous two or three that we'd read by Cotton that this last one just seemed like choking down a bowl of salt and pepper. Like it was so over the top and ornamented and no substance and it's all like flash that it annoyed me. 
It's like ordering your favorite dish at your favorite restaurant, and it's just not made as well that one time. Yeah, well, like I said, you know, the enzyme and the gelatin, it didn't set up right. But I definitely noticed, well, whether I really enjoyed the cotton book or really didn't, I definitely noticed the language. For this one, I didn't, but that's fine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I could yeah. see that. I could see. Where... I didn't notice in a negative way at all. No, I could see where the writing style would get in the way. But if, if we're talking in that term of the metaphor of writing style being flavoring, being seasoned, Reasoning, then this is this feels very much to me like a dietetic, non-salted dish that you give to your eighty-year-old grandmother. But whereas so the war machine, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not a it's, it's not a pleasant a flavor. Yes. It doesn't have you know a lot of dressings on it. But there's nothing exactly. wrong with a potato. Whereas the war, war machines is going to be a baked potato au gratin with. All the trimmings and chives and pepper and Hasselback. such. Love it, Hasselback. It's lovely. <laughs> it's it's lovely by comparison. Um. So, but no, I have other problems with this. Hasselback. Nothing to do with Elizabeth Hasselback. Yeah. Nothing at all. God we're save just, us from we're Elizabeth just on Hasselback. Another, we're just on another goddamn tangent. Um, <laughs> let's see. What were we talking? Um. One of the things is that there is an error in this first chapter that he doesn't make in the original that he leave that he puts in and the editor doesn't catch it when they come out of the city they greet him as the doctor twice even and then they say they don't know his name Mm. and that they have been calling him the traveler from beyond time Mm. because they do not know his name even though they say hello doctor Mm. yeah welcome yeah hello doctor what's your name it's like you motherfucking idiots, <laughs> and that doesn't happen in the televised version at all. And it's something that Black kind of puts in here. And there are other difficulties there. I mean, there is, of course, his removal of my favorite Hartnell line, which I accidentally played for you earlier. It's that device that they think is a weapon. It's actually the way the doctor's been tracking them, and this is the actual line of dialogue that he says in the story. This is my RV, you see. This is my reacting vibrator. Yes, it's a reacting... On the BBC in the 60s, how very progressive of them. My reacting vibrator. And now I can't get Cardinal to shut up. God, I hate this laptop. My RV, you see. This is my reacting vibrator. Del, you you owe me money. I need to make a song that is like a loop. Yes, you do. And now I'm realizing with horror that there have to be bootleg adult products that are the quote Sinex screwdriver in quotes. Oh, there's... There's a bootleg adult product for everything. Can you yes. imagine with William Hartnell emblazoned on the front? Oh, <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's more of a, a birth control since, device since, than yeah, this. I since I don't have a sonic screwdriver yet, I use the reacting the vibrator. It's, a, it's oh actually a It's to help you with celibacy. You see the Hartnell picture in here. Oh, no, no, thank you. Anyway, reacting vibrator. And they've been tracking him for years, and they've been tracking him for light years even, which just gets in my cross so yes, badly. Yes. Because that, I'm sorry. We it's a re- measure of oh, it's not time. time. My roommate and I watched a recut version of um, Empire Strikes Back last night that was oh recut <laughs> as if it were a Tarantino there. We watched Pulp Empire. Mm. Which was that. brilliant. That's kind of see that being it's, 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 yeah. I want to watch that. It's I, we just standal. watched Pulp Fiction the other day. So it is I a wanna... standal. It is the three, it's the original trilogy c- compiled as 
Tarantino would have directed it with the music and such as a standalone movie. Huh, and nice. it's brilliant, but mm. it still has that, you know, I did it in a dozen parsecs line of yes. follows. Well, yeah, you know. Years yes. is not a measure a of time. Run, yeah. When you don't know anything yeah. about science and you're writing about science. But you're writing the science fiction fans and they do know about science. Well, and this is one of the things, see, I'm starting to get into my rant now. <laughs> this is one of the things You've that they do hours. know about. Yes, I've been meaning to just rip into this goddamn book because oh my fucking god I had so much trouble with it See, I had goodwill for the things that he was attempting. I was just disappointed he didn't follow through. And I think this is where me being the so-called expert and knowing more about you know what was behind the scenes and what was intended and all this really works against me because I'm not approaching it the way you are which is to say, okay, I've never, I don't know what the story is about. Let's just read it on its face. Let's see how it goes. Unfortunately, I'm looking at it and saying, I know what could have been. I know what might have been. I know that this could have been a marvelous parable about South African apartheid, but it's so on the level and so elementary that probably the BBC just should have gone right ahead and done it with blackface actors because then we'd at least be talking about the blackface actors for a good ten minutes and then we'd shove it aside and talk about it as the parable it was meant to be instead of this kind of... People in fandom tend to talk about Hartnell's stories not being able to grasp on the huge themes because they tend to be more more like fairy tales. Mm -hmm. This is one of those stories that exemplifies that. This has huge themes that could have been talked about. I'm not sure that David Whitaker would have given it even more if he'd gotten the you know bigger page count that he would have gotten to write about it. But I can't help thinking that it's a failure on Ian Stewart, Stewart Black's part that having created this world, he couldn't expand on it. How does this culture start? Why is it that the savages are still living in these vast spires and beautiful spires that they created thousands of years ago, and yet this has been going on for that long? Why is it that they have been tracking the doctor for so long? How does the doctor know that he's being tracked for this long? It just pisses me right the fuck off. And here's the one thing that redeems it for me okay. is that I think the writer shows how the racist position is attractive. Okay. Instead of just coming to a situation of mutual, um, you know, blatant hate and animosity, we have the doctor coming in to what he supposed to be an advanced civilization, and it is. I mean, the doctor. I mean, the, the writer definitely tells much more than shows. It's yeah. beautiful. The yeah. science is fancy. Everyone's gorgeous. It's yes. the best of the best of the best. But, but, the but women are named flowers. It's enough for the concept, <laughs> though. And then there's actually this kind of wonderful woman uh, moment. Sorry, so going back to the, the reason I the Freudian slip of the word woman there is going back to the concept of so much of post Civil War American racism in the South is based on the concept of enshrining and protecting a white woman. Right. So uh, Jenna says to the doctor, the, the doctor is horrified when he understands what's going on. He's teased it out of yes. them. Like, how, how did you manage to accomplish all this when other older intelligent civilizations yes. haven't? And, and they're like, subtle well, enough not to let them know that he's figured it out. Yes, he's like, they're like, well, we may have figured out a little something extra on the side. <laughs> yes. So the doctor has figured it out. He's outraged. I think this is after he's already said, don't try to move the man. And they're like, oh, we can't hurt him if we tried. The old rascal. It's all yeah. good fun. Um, so, so this is when, when Jenna's turning on him, and before he's actually uh, decided to uh, drink his brains, uh, he says, <laughs> You took our honors gladly enough, 
So how can you now condemn the great artistic and scientific civilization of ours? It isn't logical. And I thought that once again drove to the heart of the... The one thing, and I feel like I fight with people about this all day long, the one thing that makes racism different than just tribalism is racism is pseudoscientific. Mm -hmm. And it's a product of the Enlightenment and then later the Victorian age. And a, a positive passion for taxonomy and understanding and categorizing the world gone wildly awry. Yeah. In both in, in opportunism and the misunderstanding of how genetics work. But the concept of the, 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 the person who figures out the racist system tries to confront it and is told, you've certainly benefited plenty from it, haven't you? You didn't mind going to college. That's a point. You didn't mind being protected your whole life. You didn't mind just being the first candidate in line for that job. And now you condemn us after we've done all the hard, dirty work. And it's very important to the people in the city to hide what they're doing. But it seems the necessary dirty work. I was reading something recently about in the 1960s and 70s when the British Empire was dismantling most of its final outposts, the official policy of burning records or shipping them to London. Right. Um, specifically, especially the ones that dealt with policies that were based on ethnicity or religion. Mm-hmm. To sort of hide what the empire had done, so but not not out of any sort of contrition whatsoever, but just that well the the, the British public wouldn't understand not mm. not not the people who were colonized the British public wouldn't understand what we needed to do right, right. for their benefit to mm. save them and once again as a, a story about racism for teenagers that's a, that's a pretty good and subtle point to make. Okay. Why, why the doctor would at first admire them, and then when he sees what's really going on, yeah. how they, in their minds, already have him in a moral trap. Yeah, and I, I could probably see that if I weren't looking for more of it. And I think that's what I'm wanting out of this book. But my expectations to... were so low that I was actually pleasantly surprised. That's it. Am I keep I... vacillating yeah. between a book I expect to be complete garbage and it's pleasantly better than I expected and a book I expected to really love. And I'm like, yeah. And I think that's yeah. my problem, that I had higher expectations for this because I remembered enjoying The War Machines. And there's a reason why I enjoyed The War Machines. It's because it's a great book. This one... It's not up to the same level. and But partly because it attempts great things and it just completely fumbles it in the end. Yeah. You cannot bring it home. Well, especially, and can we talk about that ending? I want to just zip to the end because... Do we have to? Have we yeah. been bad that you punish us yes. by talking about yes. that ending? Yes, we must. For because... our sins, we must talk yes, about this ending. we must ending. talk about this ending <sighs> because I swear to God, um, I read the book. Um, as I have been doing, as I've been doing regularly in in um, preparation for these podcasts, I've been rewatching the stories and then reading the, the book. Right after. Yeah. Well, basically, in this case, it might as well have been a hemorrhoid. Yeah. Anyway, I listened to the audio, and the audio was promising. Then I read the book; the book was not so promising. Then I discovered the existence of these eight millimeter clips from episode four. Which are all from Stephen's departure scenes. Is it any good? Oh my god. It's tear jerking. Okay. It is I can see the actor bringing a lot more to this than just the, the oh, writing. Yeah. Yeah. Because here's the thing 
Hartnell and Hartnell and Peter Purvis and Jackie Lang all got along really well. There were no problems. The, in fact, the main reason why they got rid of Jackie Lane is because, one, her contract was ending, and two, she was kind of like, eh, and they couldn't figure out what to do with the character. So, she only had, what, five stories? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, not much at all. Yeah, there were multiple before. But, but they so got along. Um, and Peter Purvis and Hartnell... <laughs> it's actually a pleasant change. Yes, and Peter Purvis and Hartnell had a wonderful relationship. Hartnell used to invite Peter Purvis and his wife over to dinner all the time, mm. and um, it was just a lovely relationship. It shows in that parting scene. Yeah. And Dodo, bless her heart, jumps into Stephen's arms and holds him really tight when she says goodbye to him. Is there more... Does that make more sense in the series as air than it does in the books? Because I don't get much of a sense in the books that they have much attachment or affection other than they are the humans out in the galaxy and they have some instinct of mutual protection. I think it may very well be the actors bringing their own emotions to it, but that's fine because what we get on the page instead is... Literally, goodbye, Stephen, and good luck. (laughs) Don't let the door hit you on the way out, Stephen. Yeah, Yeah. basically that. In fact, what is it? Dodo had been standing a few steps away. Now she moved to take his arm. Then decided... Maybe I'll go get a snack instead of taking yes. his arm. I shall miss you both, said Stephen, and we shall miss you. Well, look, it's a lovely Dodo. sunset instead of Stephen, whatever. And it just goes on that way. I am shall proud you? of you. I am proud of you, my boy, said the doctor. <laughs> Goodbye, Stephen, and good luck, said Dodo. I, I, well, doctor, Stephen could only shake his head. By the way, readers, uh, listeners, we are on the last page. Literally, the Literally, last page. The last page. We are within five paragraphs, small paragraphs. Of the fucking end of the book. The way the PDF works, I was trying to scroll to the next page, like, what? wait, that's it? That's yeah. no. <laughs> and this is what really pisses me off. She says, do you think we will ever see him again? The doctor was thoughtful. Who knows? <laughs> in this strange complex of time and space... Not anything... mournful, but like, why yes. should I care? <laughs> yes, in this strange complex of time and space, anything is possible. Well, my dear, we must be on our way. We mustn't look back. The doctor had put an arm around her shoulder and led her away. It was a familiar track they took as they headed back towards the TARDIS, the end. They look back. There's this long look back. And it is heartbreaking. Mm. And the only reason we know about it is because of the fucking 8mm film. It's interesting how often there is so much more to an episode than to a an adaptation or so much more to the adaptation than there was to the episode yes but the writer should be able to put that in the writer like Stephen. i don't know but given that um this is giving a few things away given that dodo's departure is given just a little more emotional resonance than this even though objectively when you see it on screen you're like she has the worst departure of any companion ever you know why it happens off screen. Mm. Yeah. Jackie Lane's contract was up as of episode two of The War Machine, so they couldn't pay her any further. So she doesn't come back for her last scene. She's, she, sends wow. a, she sends a message. And oh. the doctor's pissed off about it. It's amazing how many of these stories come down to like labor disputes and contract disputes yes. and other items. Real, real world problems. Yes. Real world yes. problems. And Which is it, why I love when the, the authors put in a note that gives some context about the writing yes. and why certain characters enter and exit. And I wonder if Ian Stewart Black was told by readers of this book, dude, Stephen is pretty important to mm-hmm. the TARDIS crew at this point and you just kind of got rid of him in one page. Yeah. He gets 
five minutes on screen and you wrote those five minutes, what the hell were you thinking? So that by the time we get to the beginning of the War Machines, well, we'll get there, but it's all foreshadowing of Dodo leaving, which we don't get in the original. And it's, it, that ending seems to suffer from, like we were, like we've already established, how everything in the story is just kind of this gloss of what it was. Yeah. There's not really any in-depth descriptions of what's happening. So Stephen's Farewell is just yeah. as glossed over as the wondrous city of the future that is the most advanced fucking civilization ever to exist. <laughs> we don't get to see any of it. Yeah. So, yeah. Why should we care that Stephen leaves? Of course he leaves. Yes. Goodbye. Like... <laughs> Like that, that's that's the well, thing. It, it come, yeah. Definitely, it, the story it, it's sunk in concept over character or setting. And that's why it's disappointing yeah. that at the end the concept is fumble because I think the first half, maybe it's the first one third, the yeah. concept's promising. And I don't know if maybe you know in 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 writing it, of course, you know. Again, it's this idea of, like, I've got so much I'm trying to get in here. What do I leave in? What do I take out? What do I gloss over? What do I really expound upon? And it doesn't really expound upon anything. But I wonder, I mean, originally writing it, the series wouldn't. 67, 68? 66. So this is, like, the height of the dismantling of the British Empire in Africa. Like, 62 to 65, is it? Um, and not just well, it, well, general European official pulling out of of Africa, even though there's some obviously some residual presence. So, mm-hmm. at the time, perhaps this was significantly more profound and groundbreaking and insightful. I can only than think it was so. by the '80s. I can only think so. In fact, it, it, instead of like, oh well, we tried, we ran out of money in the war twenty years back. What can you do? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the the other story that's contemporaneous Maybe it was braver it, than we think. That I compare it to is Let That Be Your Last Battlefield from Star Trek, which was their big hand-fisted story about yeah. race relations with the two aliens that have black on one side and white yeah. on the other and white on, black on one side and white on the other. But the, but the classic Hatfield and McCoy's complete sidestepping yeah. of, of the issue. Yeah, precisely. But they, they do, at least in that story, head on say, well, race, race means nothing to us uh, to us in the Federation. Why is this such a big deal for you? And it's like, well, because obviously he's got black on the left side of his face. It's like, it's that arbitrary? And you get a sense of how arbitrary it is. Yeah. We don't even get a sense of the arbitrariness of them using the savages for their inspiration for their energy we don't get any of that we don't get any setup for it. we don't get any sense except for one group is oppressing the other and exploiting it and that's it and but you get a bit of the arbitrariness of because the city people can yeah i guess because these are re- these are pe- people who are viewed as livestock and human resources or resources natural resources that are available to them yeah. and i would have liked more of that i would have liked more of for instance the city guard who's taken hostage by the savages who ends up being very attracted to the savage girl. And I can't think of their names because they're all... I remember Nanina. Was Nanina, the girl. that's the girl. But, yeah, the city folk know. Yeah, but that's after she's already been drained and he's attracted to her. And it's like, what does this training process actually do to them? It sounds like they have a hangover, like I'm going to have tomorrow morning, for about, you know, like five hours, and then they're yeah. fine. One thing that's not really addressed is whether or not it's draining their intelligence in a sort of measurable lead poisoning sort of way. If it's just physical draining or literally they have nothing left.
Except in the case of the Doctor, they almost mm. take too much. And they do yeah. take too much because Jano takes it all and he ends up becoming the Doctor. Right. In a way that actually paid off significantly more weakly than I expected. Yes. You know from really early on in the book that that's what's going to happen. And I kept expecting yeah. a, a twist or a double back or a switch back or something more profound. And, and it's it not that. doesn't happen. Yeah. We this reminded me though because yeah, yeah. we we've, we've spoken a lot about the themes and things about the book, but we were we were talking earlier, um, the with the transference that happens with the doctor being familiar with the idea of the doctor regenerating, uh, I kind of got a little confused maybe or maybe thought it was leading towards a mm-hmm. transformation because I don't yeah I know I only know that it's coming yeah. up because Tony has told us I thought the but, doctor might start behaving more as Janu. There might be more yeah. of a true switch instead of just a, two doctors. A true switch or, right. or even with the doctor having been a different you know, he, he is... I thought they might go, go further into the doctor seeing the seduction of the colonialist yes. viewpoint. And that would yeah. be a much more interesting story. Yeah. But even for even for me, I, I kind of thought that the, um, the doctor being you know, Gallifreyan. He's 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 obviously not the same species as the people that they are using this machine on. That something happened. You know, maybe his spirit or whatever was literally transferred to Jano. Yeah. Um, and it got me thinking kind of about like the idea of the kind of the infancy of the Doctor regenerating even you know this the the original series was that always a plot point did they always have the idea that the doctor was of this race that was that would regenerate almost certainly didn't and in so, fact i know for sure they didn't yeah because they weren't sure what the doctor was for the longest time when they were going to replace him in celestial toy maker for instance it was never a case of regeneration it was just a new face well like a soap opera where exactly at the bottom of the screen today the part of David Allen is being played by this guy you've never Precisely. seen before. Yes. And if they right. had done that, if they had gone the other Darren route, it would not have worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what it's called. Yeah, no. yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it would never have worked. The concept of regeneration is really what's kept the show going for as long as it has. Yeah, and I think, I think that this yeah. kind of like beginning seed of that idea... Yeah. Has done so much for them, right? You know, because we talked about uh, in the car how fan lore has adopted the story as the the turning point, the beginning, Mm -hmm. that the Doctor's life energy has started to be siphoned away. He's going to be somewhat weaker in the War Machine. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's just that he's in a very Mm -hmm. different position. The story we just read is a turning point. Um, yeah, because his life energy has been siphoned Uh, off. Yeah, there's some kind of essence. It's not just this specific body. Yeah, and that it's not going to come back Mm -hmm. uh, because the next story... It might have some personality difference as well as physical. Because when we get to the Tenth Planet, his life essence is... He's going to collapse, and it's because Hartnell needed a holiday, but he's going to collapse, and it's blamed on Mondas being in orbit, and that triggers the regeneration. <laughs> that old excuse, Mondas is in orbit. Thing, yeah. That old saw. They only ever bring that out at Christmas, because it was part of the Christmas special this year. Um, yeah, they kind of canonize that as the reason why he regenerates. So, it, it's... It's got its place in yeah. fan lore. Yeah. And I'm not going to dispute that place. I won't dispute that at all. What shall we dispute? Uh, that it's any good? Yeah, that's what it comes down I to. I think it is any good. It's just not nearly as good as it promises that it could be. Okay. 
Yeah, I think that's my biggest problem with it. Hopes and fears. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. We never talked about Jane O's Hartnell or the First Doctor, and that actually is the best part of listening to the story because you've got this actor who's been coached by Hartnell on mm. how to do the Doctor's mannerisms, and they are spot-on mm. perfect. That could be a magic moment in a, pro- in a TV program. It really yeah, would be. a great impressionist. And unfortunately, yeah. it's not much on the page. Mm. There's also another brilliant moment where the Doctor, where they're destroying that machinery, and the Doctor and Dodo are just slamming into things, and the Doctor says, isn't it just wonderful, my dear, to destroy things that are pure evil? And she squeaks, <laughs> aha! <laughs> and that's actually got a, a, an 8 millimeter clip attached to it. And it's like, oh, that's just brilliant. But yeah, there's just not much here. Should we should we go on to Goodreads, or is there anything else we need to discuss? Well, I've never been able to avoid it before. <laughs> I actually didn't get a chance to read all of your notes earlier, so I'm like... every every Everything tonight has been off the cuff. It's me bitching. I'll say that I have significantly fewer notes than I've ever had before on any book. And maybe well, there's not much there to make notes about. <laughs> this is one thing I would like to mention, and that is that a couple of times, maybe three times, the city people emphasize that they are all equal. They emphasize the democratic nature of their society. Maybe not democratic in terms of a governmental system, but how equal they all are. And I actually thought that was kind of an interesting, once again, going back to things that we apparently have to talk about now that we thought were settled matters 50 years ago. It's actually not a bad jab at the Jacksonian democracy concept as it first manifested under Jackson. In that Jackson said, we're not going to have any more of this business that we still have in certain states of only the landowners can vote. No, all the white men can vote. Where on the one hand, it's still extraordinarily racist. On the other hand, it's the model in some ways for the civil rights movement, feminism, mm-hmm. the, the the gay rights movement, almost every sort of political civil rights movement that has followed in the past 200 years. Right. So they emphasize this equality for just us, yeah. just the city folk, and then they are blatantly violating and desecrating it in the most flagrant ways possible, but it's not obvious to them. And I thought that was, once again, not a, not a bad way to present that concept. But even among the city folk, there are people that are... More equal than others. More equal than others. Yes. Uh, do we ever... Is it ever expressed that the civilization knows... I actually wondered about that. Their powers are gained. Is it just the hunters and the elders? Or is it Flower and Avon and some of the more Uh regular citizens? Flower and Avon, I thought, they know there's something, maybe even they aren't sure exactly what it is. But they're like, we're not supposed to go there. Yes, because that's an area where no no cars go. But they they accept it. But but that's (laughs) that's the thing. I don't know that it's ever expressed, so it comes to this thing of... Now, that would be interesting. We've come to this... This great civilization, we've gotten to this place, but the means by which we've gotten to this level of intellect is so problematic Problematic that we have to shield it from everyone else, yes. otherwise they may rebel themselves. Because they realize the moral difficulty of yeah. what they're doing, and yet they still do it, knowing full well that the populace may not go along with it. Yeah. And yeah. we don't know if the process 
is when the not if but when the process discontinued we don't know what price the city people feel they will pay yeah. and what they will actually pay what do they fear what will actually happen are they the same thing are they quite different yeah, yeah. and that and that makes me think about you know in Nazi Germany, so many German people said they did not know what was happening in the concentration camps, right. which seems hard to believe. But also knowing how nefarious and evil and fucking fucked up right. yeah. the the higher levels of the Nazi echelon were, it makes total sense that people in the German countryside didn't realize. But also that. the concept that wow, there are a lot of people who are not around anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Good God, I don't want to find out. But the once again, going back to what's the moral lesson for the modern teen? Wow. What is it my responsibility to try to find out about? And yeah. they were benefiting from it without realizing what the costs of that benefit were. Right. Without actually... Without, without realizing, but also without investigating or even trying. Or without registering the benefit. Yeah. They and just it, realized something slightly better. And it's ultimate... I, I think it speaks to complacency. Oh, yeah. It's more yeah. just... I'm... At, I'm I'm in this place of privilege. I'm in this place of things are great. And yeah. yes, I know these savages exist, but like they're there and we're here and we coexist. But yeah, I don't fully know the extent of yes. what is going on. It goes back to what Allison was yeah. saying about the banality of evil. Yeah. That yeah, it becomes yeah, yeah. so... For some people, it's like, oh, I have no idea this is going on. It's not necessarily hurting me. It's actually helping. So what should I do about yeah. it? Yeah, and it, and it it comes to more of like a question of when do you start questioning things? When do you say, no, I don't believe what you're saying? Yeah. It, it it brings up ideas of of questioning authority in ways, exactly. and 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 how there is a power structure in play. Mm-hmm. Now, what I find would have made the story more interesting. I mean, if the story were remade for the new series, it wouldn't be, of course. But <sighs> you would have a populace that didn't know that they were benefiting from this. Mm-hmm. That didn't know the mechanism. They just got the energy transferred to them. Did not know it was coming from the savages. Just were aware of the savages as a, as a populace and yeah. not what they were meant for. Um, and upon finding it out have such difficulty with it that they have to have they have to have a moral wrestling match with themselves over whether or not they want to continue with it. Yeah. You also have a doctor who has taken on enough of Jano's essence that you have this powerful time lord who would normally be on your side, who's absorbed just enough of their beliefs and their values that you kinda of have to fight him on this. Yeah. He's not doing the whole, oh, I knew Jaina was coming. In fact, come in, my dear fellow. Yeah. You're thinking this too, aren't you? Because we're the same mind now. No, it would be a cross-transference. And having that cross-transference happen with all of the savages, so much so that the city dwellers, to some degree, it's almost like uh, that next-gen episode, the poor Tashiar get, gets killed in, uh. that they give up some of their negative impulses and put them mm. into the savages and make them true savages. Yeah. So that you say, look, look at the way they're acting. Yeah. See? That justifies our treatment. Yeah. Well, it's the classic sort of abuser tactic. I refer to the term gaslighting from the actual movie Gaslight, yes. where you convince someone that they're nuts and they start acting nuts. And yes. you point to every, this behavior and point out to everyone else, see, this person's crazy. It's a classic abuser tactic exactly. to drive a person into, sort of into, a, into a corner and then you know sort of 
abuse them into a frenzied state and see, look at this animalistic individual. This yeah. is why I have to treat this person this way. And they, there, there, there is a lot of that in the beginning of the book, and it sort of trails off by the end. Yeah, because so. it turns into a typical runaround by that. Kind of a, a kind of grotesque reference to, I assumed it was to The Gods Must Be Crazy, which I just Googled. It's a 1980 movie, so plenty of time to have seen that. Yeah, but the, the quote savages and quote say at one point, the strangers must be gods, which just seemed like kind of a, a crass dig. Yeah. In some ways. There's also, and speaking of things that are just ham-fisted, on page 37, it's Senta. When he's draining off someone's energy, he says he switched. It says he switched off the scanner. Some guy, what can you do? It doesn't matter at this point, really. Yeah. He switched off the scanner and passed a hand over his brow. They really put the pressure on this place. Always on my shift. Always Tuesday mornings. Whoa. What? Whoa. Tuesday fucking mornings? So, all right. So we're all familiar with the hymn "Amazing Grace," and that the guy who wrote okay. it. The guy who wrote it, I don't remember his name. Are you trying to bring me back to Grace? Is that it? <laughs> the, the guy who wrote it used to work on a slave ship. Yes, he did. And it's often presented as this beautiful story of him repenting as this previous, from his previous life. Mm -hmm. But when you read his actual writings about his previous life, it's not his regret about the horrors that he has visited upon the people who have been enslaved, both on the ship and then taking them away from their own country and transporting them um, to a new place where they're dispossessed. But he he refers to himself in one letter as something like, I, the servant of the enslaved, where his, his mourning is all about how the experience has debased him and how yeah. he feels like he was dehumanized in the experience of acting as an assistant slaver rather than what he did to the enslaved people on the ship. So it's a little bit like, um, oh God, what's her name? Mary Richardson's diaries about being kidnapped by the Indians and the savages and how awful they were and how, oh, how happy she is to be back in Christendom. Uh, having not learned a goddamn thing while she was among the so-called savages. But I, but that once again, but that's a, I'd say the strength of the book, where this guy is sort of like a workaday lab tech, say, oh god, this again. Tuesdays, and though. And he's thinking about Tuesdays. how hard it is on him instead of the person he's sucking the life out of. That once again, that's not a bad banality. It's an alien. It's an alien world. Tuesdays. Oh. He calls it Tuesday. I completely misapprehended the nature of your Tuesdays. Okay. I'm sorry you did not enjoy our Lord too. Tuesdays. <laughs> of all the Nordic gods, that's the one you would have annoyed by the most. <laughs> Tuesdays. I have nothing against the Nords. Right. How dare you call me a Nordist? I mean, he very easily could have just said, whenever I'm the one covering. You know, right. Some, I mean, something that's not okay. So I didn't realize you were annoyed by the earthness of it all. <laughs> Literally, the word. Well, but his horror is, I'm so debased by this work instead yes. of, oh God, what am I doing and to these I people? I realize that's what Black <laughs> so. was going for. Unfortunately, Black you happened to use the word Tuesday to do it. I mean, it goes back to you know. Um, Look, he's Arthur, not going for Longfellow here. It, it goes back to Arthur Dent's thing. You know, this must be a Thursday. I never got the hang of Thursdays, and I'm like, yeah, I get that. I, I love that line from yeah. Douglas Adams. He's trying for that. It's like uh, the con the context is wrong. 
References are not his thing. No, and yeah. it sticks out like a sore thumb. It is an 80-year-old trying to be, you know, with it. You notice that Dodo actually says she's with it at one point. I'm like, oh. Don't be able to parse that. He's like, with what? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And the doctor's suddenly okay with her saying okay. And it's like, oh. Well, this is a challenge of ephemeral pop fiction. Language change. You're an English professor. You know language changes. I, I, I know that, but we're taking this out and editing, or we're just going to have the glory of the wine. It's going to be in there, because we had wine, I wanted... The wine and the glory. And admittedly, I I understand... The literal whiskey, I understand the irony of me expecting a Doctor Who book to be better than it is, and for the concepts to be deeper than they are, and probably I've been ruined by the new series, even though the new series doesn't do much better. Well, but the new series is also doing. It's not up. It's it's a lot of the the bigger themes that they're exploring in the new series go over a whole season. Yeah, it's twelve true. episodes, cool. not not four that short ex- episodes, hour long episodes at that. You we know? expect the stories to improve in quality and sophistication as the decades go by. The conversation, exactly. capital T, capital C, advances the whole public conversation, and we yeah. expect what our drama ex- scripted drama explorers to advance with that yeah. and i think we're gonna see a huge difference when we get to the first Troughton book which is power of the daleks which is written by uh, john peel because he's got that bigger page count and he's writing in the 90s yeah. so it's not a book for if this book came out in the last five years i would be stabbing it with a sharp object Right. I feel okay. like right from you have yeah to from take... the mid '60s to the mid '80s, he makes improvements, and for for the time, it's not bad. Yeah. And for the time, he's trying some interesting things. He doesn't follow through, but he is attempting more than many others are at that time. But it would not cut it today. No, and if he was given 300 or 500 pages to really flesh it out and really dig into what he's trying to say, it would probably feel a little more coherent and a little more... I'm not convinced of that, though, because I feel like he wastes the second half of the book. Yeah. Well, he, he does the second half of the story. But he wastes oh. exactly. He's got he's yeah. he's it's a runaround. He still has too much stuff to get in there. Yeah. To you know, the doctor has still to just make it feel thin. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that is something that we need to keep unpacking on this podcast is that. One of the lovely We should things. be thinner. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, no, no, no. <laughs> Way to body shame us, Mr. Wick. I wasn't looking at you, uh-huh. either of you at that point. Um, now I can't remember what the fuck I was saying. Um, My that plan succeeded. Not only, shut up. Not only should the Doctor <laughs> Who stories... You heard it here first. <laughs> not only should the Doctor Who... Yeah, like I've ever, like I've ever cut your voice off. <laughs> the Doctor Who novelizations... The beauty of Doctor Who is that it tackles issues like this. Yeah. That's one of the beauties of the Doctor Who novelizations, that it introduces young readers, or it did, to these concepts that they could later unpack on their own. And probably there's something to be said for this being told in such simplistic detail yeah. that they yeah. could, you know, fill in the spaces themselves. I mean, I, I, I didn't get things like this from Goosebumps. No. Arl no. Stein isn't sitting here making me think about apartheid in South Africa. No. Or cultural appropriation. We would not be able to talk like, almost two hours about Goosebumps. No, no. About any of the Goosebumps. For the reader books. who's a sort of 
to put it in crass terms, the young English-speaking white in the mid-80s. I think this could be really interesting. A writer of color could have written circles around this. Oh, yeah. yeah. Octavia Butler would have had a field day with this concept. But wasn't recruited for this project. No, she was not, unfortunately. So, for the tools he has, I think in the first half, he does some really good things. He just can't quite carry it through. But that's... Mm -hmm. That's more admirable than not even trying at all. Yeah. yeah, and that's not a fault of him. It's a fault of the system the Doctor Who is produced in. The very fact. Did you just blame it on society? No, no, no. <laughs> it's the system. No, no, no. The, Keep it I was down. talking about the BBC. <laughs> yes. Oh, gotcha. The very fact that the BBC itself as an entity was willing to entertain the idea yeah. of having a, a parable about apartheid, even if it would have involved a whole cast of white actors in blackface. When which there was, was still not no... over in 1986. Was, I'm sorry, Which was still not over in 1986. No, no, not over until, what, 93, 94? Yeah, yeah. It was still it was still in there when I was a high schooler. In fact, I one of the first... Oh, God. All right, I'll tell you a story. One of the first um, guys that I tried to date via mail in the 80s, because this was something you did, the personal ads. Of course. Was a boy who wanted to move to South Africa and had actually learned Afrikaans. Because he was very much, how did he put it? He said he was very much in favor of the system there. And at the time, Yikes. I didn't realize what he was saying. And now wow. I do understand Yikes. what he was saying. Because God, You meet some terrible people, Tony. I really do. It's like a gift. I know. I don't know where it comes it's from. Magnet for dicks and not the good kind. No. Not, well... <laughs> What except, does that say about us? Sorry. Except for my current roommate who never re- listens to these podcasts, but just in case he does, Danny, she doesn't mean you. I do not mean Danny. Uh, yeah, we are not. I'm not dating Danny at the moment, but I used to, so there you go. So, yeah. And I've never, ever heard Danny advocate apartheid. No. <laughs> no, 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 certainly not, even though Danny does have a, a pair of Pepe the Frog socks. That we bought in New Orleans, <laughs> which he'll now wear because he's like, "Fuck the white supremacists! This isn't their symbol; it's mine." It existed before white supremacists. Yeah, appropriated it. Appropriated. <laughs> there you go. There we go. Fucking there we go. Ugh. So yeah. <laughs> it with a ritual desecration of a photo of Richard Spencer. <laughs> quick, quick thing before we go to Goodreads, Stephen. We have now seen the totality mm. of mm. Stephen's time on Doctor Who. Bad companion, good companion, bleh. Uh, I, I will not remember him in two weeks' time. I will not remember a person ever passed this way. Okay. Dalton? Uh, yeah, he's nothing special. My my entrance to Doctor Who was seeing Rose exit. Right. Mm. And that one episode destroyed me. Hmm. Yes. That tells you how well done, BBC. Well done. That tells you how the departure of companions should be handled. Exactly, and hearing hearing how it was portrayed on screen, it could have had that emotional impact. I will show you those clips after we're done because they are heartbreaking. But the way it's handled here, and the way that Stephen has been handled, yeah, I don't feel attached. I don't feel mm-hmm. like I mm-hmm. care about him. And it feels like the doctor's throwing him under the bus. Yeah. Here. Barbara and Ian, I cared about. Vicky, meh. She had her moments. I'm yeah. slightly annoyed that the two companions I've seen leave before, Susan and Vicky, and then... Well, I guess Barbara and Ian left kind of together. I was going to say that the teen girl companions left for love, and he's the only one who gets to go off by himself. I guess Ian was paired off with Barbara. Dodo's not going to leave for love. Okay. 
the reason she leaves. Are they just as annoying, or are they at least they better uh, or worse? They will get there. We'll have to tune in to find out. Yeah, we'll tune into the next episode. Yeah, you will because yeah, that book is a very different animal than this one. I'm trying to refrain from the obvious joke of she just waddles off because she's flightless. Waddles off into extinction. (laughs) Yes. Well, here's the thing, Stephen. I I kind of agree with Trey Corte, who we've had on the program before, that Peter Purpose is a beautiful human being, and he is a wonderful guy. And a wonderful actor, strangely enough. He has quite the range. Stephen was not allowing him to pursue that range. No. On the page, Stephen seems to have range because he's a singer, he's a piano player, I he's he a does fencer, not on the page have he's an range. actor. Well, that's just that he's everything but what he should be. An yeah. astronaut. Some sort of aimless dilettante, yeah. Yeah, he's somebody that should be able to help the doctor. None of those characteristics persist, though. You no. don't see him interested in music across more than one no. book or anything like that. Just as we got Dodo being the poker fiend last time, and you wouldn't expect yeah. that out of her this time. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, it's inconsistent. Just, my disappointment with what was done with Vicky ultimately stemmed from the fact ultimately stemmed from the fact that for several books they showed her trying to understand how sarcasm works. Yes. And that was a great character development, yes. I thought. Yeah. I that, thought that was marvelous. But I don't feel like Stephen or Dodo has had either one have had that sort of even one note. Yeah. And we It's of a different pale note each book. And we'll definitely have to talk about Dodo next time, but Stephen for sure, yeah. We it's don't just have like, to and you can't make us. Well we will. It's gonna be. It's part of the story. Thanks, or else, Dad. Or else you're not gonna get your stipend. Uh, <laughs> All right. Wait, so. That, what? What? Two yeah. bottles of rosé. Yeah, uh, exactly. If you want to do this without alcohol next time, yeah. <laughs> All right. Next time, beet juice for everyone. Exactly. Or even worse, um, that cat. stuff that um, no, that stuff that wharf drinks, um, prune juice. Mm. Well, I'm old enough to need it, as we always do. <laughs> Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of Give the books Give it a good flush, shall we? By other readers, <laughs> then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if, you're listening, to this, if you're listening to this podcast and you can hear it over Allison's ratings and want to have your review featured <laughs> when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, this recording the class write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment somewhere. Punch and pie! Yes. <laughs> Christ all. Fucking mighty. Why do I even keep There's no need to blaspheme. The average. The, yes, there's plenty of reason to blaspheme. God damn it. The average rating for this story out of five stars. Disturbing the cats. Is 3.2 fuck the cats. It's 3.2. What a terrible metric. Slightly lower than the previous book, The Gunfighters. Okay. Are we out of alcohol? God damn it, we are. Yeah, it's lower than The Gunfighters. Oh, you did. No, no, no. You need that. You need that. Drink it. Drink it, drink it, drink it. Since I have to, I have to drive home. That's true. <laughs> so, That's true. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about this being admitted into evidence in court in a week's time. Yes. Out of five Carry stars, on. is three point two. All right. <laughs> not very good, but not the worst ever. Here's some sample reviews. Dennis Southall. The evil eye just caught. Yes, Dennis Southall. Gives it two stars and says, Moral tale of a superior society exploiting the life force of savages, quote-unquote, to maintain and progress their elite status. Obviously, the Doctor and companions Dodo and Stephen intervene to show the elite the error of their ways, and everyone leaves happily ever after, with the help of Stephen, who stays on to do some mediation in the reconciliation process when the Doctor and Dodo leave. Pedestrian story, with a whole societal change instigated due to the action of 
the few people involved in the story not compelling, but I understand the confines of the program at the time. That's kind of true. Yeah. And, and we could say that about the book as well, really. Jennifer gives it, not Jenny, Jennifer gives it three stars and says, given my view of most First Doctor stories, this turned out surprisingly well. Short and slight, but for the better for it. It's not a very original tale, but perhaps it is a classic plot. I like the way in which someone who's been shown compassion does not respond in the way you would hope. I'm not sure what that refers to. Mm -hmm. I guess. I rather felt that the Doctor's terrible experience... Oh, maybe when the savages are interested in killing Stephen. Maybe. I don't know. He thinks they should be grateful that he sided with them. They're like, hey, he has friends in the city. We should just kill this guy. I guess. I rather felt that the Doctor's terrible experience did him good as he was verging on the nice to know afterwards. Oh, how dare you? And finally, Steve, no relation, (laughs) gives it four stars and says, never seen the original, obviously, but I did like this adaptation of it. The finale seems a bit rushed, you think? Especially regarding Stephen's sudden decision to stay, or actually the Doctor's sudden nomination of him to stay behind. (laughs) Right? Yeah, the sudden throwing him under the fucking bus. Get out of here. But I did like the central dilemma, and I liked that the Doctor was notorious enough, even in these early days, that legends had built up around him. Let me say two things about that. One, I do like that. The fact that we suddenly get this idea of the Doctor as a force of nature that other civilizations are learning about. Yeah. That's nice. Two. Yeah. That they will revisit that in the audio dramas when they bring Stephen back and he meets the fifth doctor. He actually has a moment where he says, You know, I was just a kid then. Mm. And mm. you kind of nominated me to stay behind. It was rough. Mm. And the doctor doesn't know what to say to it. He's mm. like, That's a good oh, moment. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry about that, but I, I knew you could do it. You did, didn't you? And he said, There have been some wars, but yeah, it's, it's peaceful now. It's been rough, and the doctor says, well, I'm glad to hear that. But you do have at least Mm -hmm. that moment of revisitation. Yeah, and that's... That's nice to hear. That's more poignant than we've had in, what, eight stories of Stephen? Ten? Yeah. Yeah. But that's the audio dramas. That's the difference between the audio dramas and the books. The audios are willing to expand on character development. But that's the concept of, you know, Homer's stories. Homer's not the only one, but, you know, the Iliad flows into the Odyssey and the Anniette, etc., you know, comics universes, etc., is that later people can find a poignancy in the characters that we missed earlier. Yeah, I thought and, Aeneid was virtual. Yeah, but it's the same, it's the same, it's the same universe, if you will. Same universe, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I think extremely broad terms here, yeah. It's the same, it's the same, same sort continuity. of... Yes, it, yeah, it was the same sort of shared, like like Riverdale or something like that. The same shared universe, if <laughs> you will. Yes. <laughs> fucking Riverdale. Well, no, well, but Riverdale has existed for, what, 50 years that or so? That is true, that is true. A, a, a universe that three or more writers have worked on that has existed for at least 30 years. And has various of. different alternate universes, including where Archie meets the Punisher. So yes, you're right. That's a point. Well, That's but, point. but yeah, we talk about Star Trek, etc. It's, it's just... Greek mythology is the obvious starting point for this, but the, the yeah. concept of the story that continues through three or more writers for many decades. Yeah, I can see that. And, okay. and, and later, later people find these moments of truth and poignancy in the yeah. earlier stories that weren't necessarily included in the first telling of the stories. Yeah. And I think 
The idea yeah, of Stephen yeah. as someone who is left behind actually is more poignant to me than and anything think, I've read about him in yes. his first time through. And I think yeah. that's probably, you're putting my uh, your finger on the very reason why I dislike this book, but I'll get to it when we get there. Um, okay. Let me let me get Dalton first. Out of five stars, let me get this book Dalton. Um, I'm just going right in the middle with the three. Uh, I, like, I like the ideas that it's getting at, but I think that it, it's method of, of of doing it is not quite as effective. But e- even keeping in mind that it's, re- you know, I'm usually the one that says, it was a nice Sunday read, easy for teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are no beaches in January in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> no. I've lost all, all sense of time. Thematic to our podcast. Even though I've been uh, stuck in my apartment for two months. Um, but no, it seems like, yeah, this is, this the series is is starting to build and it's starting to grow and it's like mm-hmm. like you're saying it's starting to really start to form this larger picture mm-hmm. of how things are um you know like we're saying the mythology of the doctor as right. it were um yeah it 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 has it has a lot of good kind of beginnings yeah and so for a beginning it's good mm-hmm. but kind of the implementation it's Mm. It's it kind of a letdown, okay. but um, no, there's there's a there's a lot of good stuff here, and it really it, it didn't make me think a lot. All right, which so, which was good. Good. So three out of five. yeah, three out of five. Awesome. I'm gonna go with a two, but I still argue that my two is kinder than Dalton's three. That's true. Um, <laughs> in context here, I admire what he's trying, but at the same time, I have. The, the the crackers perspective on this i can say it i am a white <laughs> um so in context here i started my day at 5 30 in the morning in a closed facebook group with people who had a common element of our experience in the 80s and 90s and since have gone many ways in life and uh are able to fight together as strangers on the internet with a sort of shared past in a way that human humanizes us to one another in a way that we otherwise uh, might not be able to humanize one another. Yeah. And I started my day responding to some uh, basically recently alt-right boys. And when I say boys, I mean adult men in their 30s and 40s. Wow. Yeah. Who are insisting that they have experienced racism all their lives because they were once called an ugly name for being Caucasians, etc. And I put in what I thought was my very profound thoughts about, well, racism is, the term racism is used colloquially to refer to personal prejudice. There's this other concept of structural racism that's separate. You can use different terms. We have two different concepts here we're talking about. And I thought it was being super profound. There are other comments on this thread. And then later on, on this cracker thread, an actual black person with our same background shows up and he says, this reminds me of when I was in the 90s and I was one of, I was a member of one of three black families in this situation and I was surrounded by a thousand white experts on race. Yeah. (laughs) And he proceeded to light us up in the best ways possible and I just felt badly that he had had to do it. And I thought I'd been so profound before. So I'm going to give it a two. Uh, any listeners of color, uh, of color, please feel free to come in and light us up. 
You shouldn't have yeah. to do it, but we don't know what we're talking about from the inside. And we really do not. I mean, two of us on this panel are gay, so that's the closest thing we have to that. Yeah, and even that is a fun I'm the lady frame. here. It's a different thing, yeah. but... This is a book about ethnicity and race, and we are all English-speaking white people here. We think we get it, but there's an experiential level at which we have not lived it in the same yeah. way. And Dalton and, I, uh, Dalton and I are part of a minority that's considered an invisible minority, because even though we are an oppressed group, we're still white, and we're still cisgendered, and we're still male. Yeah. Yeah. And so from the outside, it's not going to look like we're anything but the oppressors. And this is something I run into all the time when I teach these concepts in class, and I understand it. And as the white woman, the southern white woman, the American woman, I'm told I'm the person that all the racism is for. It's necessary for me. <laughs> I should take your receipt. Honor. You're well, welcome. Well, yes. 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 Shut up, bitch, you'd be dead without this. Mm. Is an extremely crass version of it. So I'm going to give it a two... I really don't know what I'm talking about in terms of the deeper themes of the story. I'm trying to understand what I'm yeah. talking about, but it is actually really hard for me to be objective and about it. And I have it. a feeling that that's probably Ian Stewart Black's problem, too. But he is trying in a way that at the time we can't take for granted. Yeah. 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 So to get on to my assessment of it, it's obvious I don't like this book. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. But... I dislike this book not for, well, I do find it poorly written in some ways because the prose standard isn't up to the books surrounding it, which is ironic given that one of the books surrounding it is The Gunfighter, so that's Donald Cotton. You'd expect it not to be up to those standards, even though Al didn't like that book. But it's also compared to one of his own books, yeah. a later book, which... He apparently has taken on the notes of people who have told him that earlier book didn't, really didn't work too well. Please do more of this. And amazingly, he did more of this. And it turns out he's a damn good pro stylist, and he's willing to go into the heads of people, and he's willing to give us description. <laughs> but not in the way the characters in our book go into heads well, of people exactly. that suck out the juice. Well, no, not in that <laughs> way. Not that way. Right. He's, not that there's anything wrong with that. He's not a bad writer. And you'd expect him not to be, given that he's been, you know, writing since, up until his death in the 90s, he was writing from the 1930s. He had 60 years of writing experience. Yeah. They are not reflected by the prose on this page. No. The, prose think, is very, the prose is very pedestrian. But the ideas, I think, do, ref I mean, for a person who grew up in what, in our country, is the height of lynching. In yeah. his own country, it's not quite the same thing, but in terms of, think about the... Oh, the state of the empire in 1915 versus 1965 versus 1985. I'm, I'm fudging on the years a bit here. I know that. There's, there, there are a few wires arcing upstairs there. No, I get that. I get that. I think my dislike of the book comes from the fact that I wanted it to be so much more. And that comes from an older Doctor Who fan's belief that the show is best when it's carrying... It's liberal socialist interests on its sleeve, that it's specifically trying to fight for the underdog, that it's yeah. trying desperately to use science fiction as a cudgel at times to mm. tell people what the right way to go is. If you're going to do it, do it. Exactly. <laughs> and this story is the starts of it. In fact, I think you said that. It's the starts of it, yeah. but it's it doesn't go nearly far enough. 
And admittedly, Doctor Who isn't going to get that far very often in the 60s. It'll get there in the 70s. We'll get a lovely environmentalist story in the 70s. Uh, we'll get a few more like that, as it turns out. By the time we get to the 80s, we get such a self-aware Doctor Who as a series that we will get an anti-Margaret Thatcher episode that to this day has fans arguing whether or not it's anti-Thatcher or whether it's got no political content whatsoever. Wow, what year? 1987, I believe. Huh, interesting. Mm. So we've got a while before we get there. Yes, indeed, we do. Yeah, by the time we get to the Happiness Patrol, um, we'll we will have... all be dead. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll all be dead. In a day. I'll Tony be dead. will be dead. I'll be dead because I probably will have committed suicide by then. But it's... When I look at a story like this, I think it could have been so much more. And I wanted it to be so much more. And then I heard the war machines, and I was like, oh my god, this is so much more. So that's what it comes down to. So yeah. Score? Two. But, Allison, you're right. Your two is much kinder than mine. And much kinder than Dalton's three. Yeah. Tony's two is a kick in the nut. Yeah, it's not even that. I'm I'm not even attacking Ian Stewart Black. I mean, how can you attack? How can you attack a series of books that is simply trying to reproduce stories for a viewership that's never seen them and yeah. will never see them? In well, this that's case. a more existential yeah. question about why we exist as a media entity at all. Yeah, and that's the thing. Deep the, man, have you ever really looked at your hand? Oh God, don't start that shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Even though, of course, she's going to. Suddenly we vanished. <laughs> and suddenly we vanished. But that's why this is a two. It's a story that if we still had it on screen to appreciate, I'm still not sure I would like this, the book any better. No. I think I would no, be yeah. too busy hanging myself over the black face for what you've described Probably. to notice any actual dialogue. Right, but I'll show you those 8mm clips after we're done, and you'll say, yeah, this is better on screen. This is better on screen. So as a novelization, yeah, it's a two. It's a two. All righty. So thank you, guys. Of course. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for not putting up with us for so goddamn long. Next time our, we continue... Our perennial sign-off. Yes, next time <laughs> we continue our respectful version of Black History Month by reviewing Ian Stewart Black's last of his three novelizations, The War Machines. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in order in those spaces. You can visit our nearly pristine Reddit, even though we do get comments on there occasionally, which is lovely. www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. We still have videos of our first 12 episodes on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos follow us on vitter on vitter on twitter at dwtargetbc or subscribe to us via the podcaster of your choice we are on itunes soundcloud stitcher tune in intermediately uh, intermittently on Podbean, and we are of course on google play store if all else fails you email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels Bye-bye. Good night. bye bye good night
I've started to view those glasses as one bladder full. Oh my god. Oh my god. Don't you dare put that on the internet, Tony. Well, guess what? We're still recording. Uh huh. I love it. One bladder full of rose. Thank you. That'll be our sign off. Lord. This is my RV, you see. This is my reacting vibrator.